Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me, hopefully recovering from an illness she caught on Miasma Island, the unhealthiest set of desks in the whole TLS. I was going to say, you you yourself sounded slightly more deflated than normal in your, your welcome there. I'm fine, though. I'm, I'm, fi- underwhelmed I'm, physically, by... I'm physically okay. Are you feeling better? <laughs> I'm very well. It is a very you. unhealthy set of desks. <laughs> That's my point. Thea Lenarduzzi, I didn't get to your name there, such as my eagerness to mock you for being slightly <laughs> ill. It is a very unhealthy desk, isn't it? We're working too hard, though, so I think uh, that's the problem. I think we can all agree on that. That's probably true. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS and this podcast reviewers on iTunes where you can. Thea. Yes. We did a thing on sleep <laughs> last week. Yes. And you were on Twitter and I was on Twitter and the writer Lara Fiegel tweeted about yes, how she listened to our podcast did. late at night as she fell asleep. Yes. She said it was a cure for insomnia. Yeah, I know. And you picked me to the post, but I was about to I say, said, oh, I'm thank, not yeah, sure yeah, that's a compliment. That. Anyway, she goes, oh, it is a compliment because I have your voices churning around in my unconscious. I wouldn't wish on anyone. And it made me think, think about podcasts, people can listen to them all over. We get loads of reviews from all over the world. So I thought people could tweet at the TLS, our main Twitter account, and tell us where they listen to the podcast. Yeah. Because where in the country, what you're doing, where in the world, and we'll read out the most exotic or mundane locations. And if you do it in bed, that's fine as well, like Lara Figo. If you can find a nicer way than saying it helps cure my insomnia, that's good also. <laughs> but if you tweet at the TLS where you listen to this podcast, I'd be very interested to find out. The more exotic or mundane, the better. Exactly. The more extreme, the better. Extreme on either side would be fine. <laughs> Coming up this week, it's easy to think of privacy invasion as a peculiarly modern phenomenon, all about hacking and phishing and so on. But it has its own history, dating back to the American Civil War. Sarah Igo will tell us more about that. Thea, as we know, is lots of things, but in this case, <laughs> a <things>. food junkie. <laughs> And we talk about food quite a lot. Thankfully, B. Wilson has written a piece we can talk about properly on this podcast on <laughs> lateral cooking and food that appeals to all the senses. B's on hand to walk us through some edible clouds. And this week marks the centenary of the end of the First World War, an event of cataclysmic slaughter that has shaped the entirety of modernity. We have lots of different pieces on it in the paper this week. And David Horsepool, our history editor, is in the studio to tie them all together.
1917, the poet Siegfried Sassoon wrote a statement which was read out in Parliament entitled Finished with the War, a Soldier's Declaration. He said he wanted to destroy the callous complacence with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of agonies which they do not share and which they have not sufficient imagination to realise. In fact, Sassoon's poetry, as with so many others of the period, precisely helped subsequent generations to develop sufficient imagination of what war, not just that war, all war, might entail and how we might respond to it. That question of how to remember the war and the dead is understandably asked with greater urgency in this centenary of the First World War's ending. Sassoon asked it in his poem Aftermath, which shudders under the burden of horrors vividly experienced. Do you remember the stretcher cases lurching back with dying eyes and lolling heads, those ashen grey masks of the lads who once were keen and kind and gay? The answer is no, of course. There are now too few people to recall those specific sensations. Memory has passed into history. This week in the TLS, Richard J. Evans examines a newly translated German book, Pandora's Box. It seeks to be a universal and definitive record of a war that, in Evans's phrase, left deeper scars on public memory than any other conflict. Alan Mallinson considers the final hundred days of fighting, concluding with Churchill's verdict that victory was to be bought so dear as to be almost indistinguishable from defeat. And Alice Kelly looks at how the Imperial War Museum is commemorating the anniversary. Have you forgotten yet? Ends Sassoon's poem. Look down and swear by the slain of the war that you'll never forget. David Horsepool is here to talk about the remembering and forgetting of the First World War. David, hello. Hello. So this is a centenary lasting four years in a yes, way, isn't it? This is, just, isn't it? this is yeah. just the end of it. Has our national or, or the historical relationship to the war changed over the four years of commemorating it? Sadly, I'm not sure that it has. I was looking back a bit through some of the coverage that we've had through the war, which interestingly, as you were saying about PCU last week, started, of course, before the first anniversary. I think we started in... <laughs> 2013 with the first onslaught of books there and have you know steadily gone through the anniversaries ever since and the same themes do still seem to come up you know we still have historians there are historians like William Philpott and Gary Sheffield who have been at the forefront of trying to move our perception of the war beyond the futility the western front beyond you know a brief Gallipoli interlude. Lions led um, by donkeys. And lions led by donkeys and no movement at all. That's not to say that there weren't elements of all that in what really happened in the First World War. But of course, there's very much more to the story than that. And it doesn't really explain how the war was won for a start. Because if the first day of the Somme had carried on forever, as it were, we'd still be fighting it today. Why has it become so transfixed? And is it because we can, in the way the Second World War doesn't have a battle? that you think of, whereas the, the First well, World War the, the is the British think of, that's true. We didn't, you know, our losses on the first day of the Somme, I think, were worse than any single day in the Second World War. So that's one reason, yeah. And I think another reason is the effect of, you know, you were reading those very memorable lines from Sassoon. We have the lines of Owen. We also have the way things are taught in school. I think people look at things through the poets. And it's quite difficult to get beyond that but there is a lot of historical work out there that does move us a bit further along and gives us a more nuanced and wider particularly a wider view of the war I think that's quite an interesting 
way to look at it. It seems not unexpected that there would be a sort of a, a rigidity to the way that we remember the First World War, though, because so much effort was put into the consideration of how, in the immediate aftermath, to remember. Like, yes. I, can't, I can't think of another conflict. I mean, I, I'm hardly a specialist, but I can't think of another conflict that had that much kind of backwards and forwards in negotiation over how best to remember. Well, I think that's because it was this first total war that involved the home front a lot more than previous wars had and that people had more of a stake in it both in Britain but also in France and in Germany and throughout their empires as well. So that idea of discussing how to remember it that was the first time that had really happened and it, and it has set the tone for the way we remember wars mm. ever since. And there was going to be, a, I learned from Alice Kelly's piece, there was going to be a hall of remembrance. Yeah. Yes. But they never got round to, was it they never got round to it? Or never no, quite she worked? doesn't discuss why that didn't. She said she, to me, when talking about this, she said it was a very complex story as to why it didn't go ahead. But the exhibitions at the Imperial War Museums in London and Manchester do reconstruct these halls of remembrance to some extent. But I suppose they've become everywhere, haven't they? One of the things about the First World War is every village has a First World War memorial, the symbol of the poppy is universal. Almost the entire nation has become the halls of remembrance. It's it's universal for us, but the French have a different symbol. These are cornflowers. Yeah, yeah, le bleu, I think it's called. And I think we are in danger. It's very good and only right that we should recognise the sacrifice of past generations and current generations if we kind of choose to link it up in that way. But I think it's a very disadvantageous thing to do to focus too much on our own country to kind of re-nationalise this whole debate. So this Richard Evans is reviewing Jorn Leonard's book? Jorn Leonard, I'm saying. Uh, Which is Pandora's Box. It was translated, came out, I think, in 2014 for the beginning of the centenary and is now translated for 2018. And it took four years to translate and publish because it's over a thousand pages long. It's quite hard to translate as well. Yes, um, and Richard Evans basically says, I mean, we praise translators a lot in the pages of the TLS, but I suppose that praise wouldn't be worth much if we didn't criticise them too. He basically says he's not that impressed with parts of Patrick Kemmler's translation when it's more technical and abstract. When there's a narrative, he says it's very good and it does read well. But, but that when might it's, be the fault of the German. Yes, I think technical and abstract German historiographical writing is probably jolly difficult to translate into idiomatic English. But this is a book that is trying to do what you're talking about, not only because from our point of view it, it's by a German so it automatically decenters it a bit, but even within that it's trying to say here is a account of the First World War that is universal. It points to other bits of it that we might not get fixated upon. Exactly. And Richard Evans writes about some of those areas that it looks at. I mean, principally, I think, for it's salutary for British readers to think, first of all, about the Eastern Front, Mm -hmm. which was just as lethal as the Western Front, really. And I think Evans points out that there were losses on the Eastern Front to compare to the casualties on the first day of the Somme. In fact, they were greater, he says, than those of Verdun and the Somme combined at one point. So I think that's always very well worth looking at. So where is the Eastern Front? What so the Eastern about? Front, I think it didn't move much, but I think it runs from the Black Sea up to Kaliningrad, Königsberg. So yeah. it's huge and extended, and you know the Russians, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire were fighting against each other there. Of course, these losses were, were horrendous. But they weren't memorialised... 
Well, the empires fell that they were fighting them, and that makes it more difficult to have that consistency, I suspect. Interesting as well is he tackles an almost forgotten chapter, he, he calls it Leonard, and he looks at the African contribution, which isn't something that I'd read much about. No, and we have something else on that, well, in a couple of other places in the paper, partly in Alice Kelly's discussion, there's a, an installation called Mimesis at the Imperial War Museum about an African soldier's experience, sort of standing in for other colonial experiences of the war. And in fact, as well, our friend and colleague Adrian Tauerden has reviewed a new French novel, well, has taken in a new French novel and discussed the French writer Georges Duhamelouf, who wrote about Senegalese fighters, tirailleurs Senegalais on the Western Front. And there were hundreds of thousands of these. That's something like 170,000 West Africans one fighting. One in eight Kenyan men. One in eight Kenyan men died. They weren't died. allowed by the British to fight. They were, they were allowed to be on the front, but they weren't allowed to fight. It was seen in the Western Front, it was seen as a white man's war and it was seen as improper. Well, I think the Indians The Indians, but, the Indians but not the Africans. It's one of the, the, the classic examples of imperial racism. Yeah, the French racism didn't seem to go that way because yeah. the tirailleurs Senegalais did were. Fight. Yeah, but if you were a black yeah. West Indian, you weren't allowed to fight on the Western Front, but you were allowed to be a labourer. It was one of the right. strange mm. examples of and uh, um, uh, Chinese labourers in huge numbers as well were there. So yeah, it was a truly world war in that respect, in that populations of all over the world fought were kind of transported long distances to fight but they also fought on their own doorsteps in Africa in Central Asia Evans writes about an uprising in what's now Kazakhstan hundreds of thousands died there rising up against an attempt by the Tsarist forces to conscript them I mean these stories are not ones that I know about at all or knew about at all but they're obviously part of a global story that we lose if we just concentrate on Passchendaele, the Somme, Gallipoli, despite the importance of which, all those And which places. is quite funny in a sense because when Rudyard Kipling was enlisted to work on the inscription for the gravestones, he specified that this was for soldiers who had died in all four corners of the world and on every sea and then somehow we lost that global dimension. Yeah, I think that's right. We lost it a bit partly because as with everything to the First World War, we can't help but look at it through the prism of the mm. Second World War, which was even more global. That's one problem with that. And partly because of this focus that we have, certainly, and I think they have in France to a certain extent, on the Western Front. And the poetry as well. I was trying to think when I was looking at my book, has there ever been an artistic response to an event greater than the First World War poets? I suppose you might argue Shakespeare's response to the uh, Wars of the Roses, but apart from that, that's yeah, only but, one man. But, and <laughs> um, also the experience of it. And what's so fascinating about it is, you know, if you look at the Greek tragedy, it tackles some recent events, but it doesn't really respond to them in the same way. The First World War poets created an entire idiom of how to deal with the unfairness and futility of war. And that seems to be an extraordinary thing that happened. Yeah. And when we talk about the First World War, it is impossible mm. if you're British not to think in some form or another, even osmotically, of Wilfred Owen or Sassoon or, or gas attacks and, you know, he's not a bad bloke, said Harry to Jack, or the bit in Delset Decorum Est with, yeah, the, yeah. with, with the, the guy drowning in gas. All of that is... We're conditioned to think in that way, aren't we? And that has set the tone and our sort of mental grammar for dealing with the conflict. I think that's right. And again, I think maybe that's why this Leonard book will be valuable to... Anglophone readers, I mean, Evans says that there's a section on culture and he 
criticizes it for this but at least it brings home the point he says a sexual culture focuses on cinema mentioning only a few works of literature and does not mention the british war poets and now we can't imagine a book about the first world war which goes so far as to mention literature and w- wouldn't mention the war poets but as a as a german historian looking at it maybe it doesn't feed into what he wants to discuss and there are other poetic responses as as we also have in our paper this week like the italian poets and the futurists there's another piece in the paper because we can't talk about all of it sadly bill bell has written about mm. the tommies and what they were reading that is about the western front really isn't it yes it is and one of my favorite things about that i mean it's a really fascinating piece one of my favorite things about it is it introduces me to a something i didn't know about i'm a great fan of the raffles stories of ew horner yeah and i didn't know that horning had been basically a librarian Mm. on the western front and not only a librarian for the tommies on the western front but he seems to have cleared out what sounds like quite a fun youth club where people (laughs) played billiards and sang around the piano and told them all to shove off and instituted a sort of clubby library for the better uh, sort of books quiet yes and <laughs> and there's obviously a, something a class thing going on there but i think bill bell makes the point that actually it wasn't explicit enough it didn't say you couldn't come in if you were a private soldier or something but it was for the more contemplative private soldiers but there was a view enjoy. wasn't there john buckham was involved in this as well there's a view that your tommy wouldn't want to read anything particularly difficult and that wasn't and then Bell says true. that wasn't true, and he has a lovely story, for example, of Royal Army Medical Corps private who's cleaning some plates which had Greek inscriptions on them. Who knows? I suppose some some officer bringing them to the front. The person observing this found the private explaining what the Greek inscriptions were to the other staff. So this is a world of great learning and curiosity and he uses a great image he says imagine lieutenant leonard bast of the middlesex regiment finding himself billeted with his commanding officer tibby schlegel and that idea of the classes kind of mixing together in the first world war in ways that just hadn't happened before is obviously a very powerful thing and it comes out very well in bill bell's piece remember that letter we had in which the tls published in during the war which was from a, a guy saying he was criticizing an essay on Mozart, I think, that the TLS had published, and he was writing from the trenches. It was a brilliant TLS letter, sort of snarking about a review, but it came from <laughs> under, the trenches under and it, fire. under fire. And, and other stuff is, is absolutely marvelous. We, we can't carry on. The, one last thing. Simon Jenkins, the writer oh, yes. this morning, said we should stop remembrance services, we should stop remembering, because we're the only country that does it we kind of fetishize it and actually it's unhealthy well i think he's got a point to some extent the one i read that article and and the one thing he doesn't mention which gets my goat every year listeners to this podcast may recognize me as a football fan and if you follow football there's a yearly thing about wearing the poppy being sewed into players shirts and and someone objects to it someone doesn't want to wear it and someone says and everybody gets on their high horse it's a completely ludicrous thing and especially the idea of enforced remembrance is just wrong do you know if you go on television at any point from about the 29th of october you're about to walk on television and there is a poppy stand someone physically grabs you and puts a poppy on you and you can say no but the point is they'll tell you if you say no 
you will get absolutely savaged for being non-patriotic. And so any, anytime you see people on news channels wearing poppies, mm. that's what's happened. 80% of them in. will have just been just put on yeah. put on them as they as they walk onto mm. the set. That happened to me almost in reverse because I picked up a poppy when being interviewed on a small BBC channel around this time of year. And I noticed my interviewer wasn't wearing a poppy, but I had put one in thinking that's what you did. And then at the end of the interview, he said, thanks very much. It'll be going out, as you know, in February. So I just looked like <laughs> someone who wore a poppy every day. of the A hugely patriotic. Uh, the, you can't remember. What, what's the Italian? Well, I, when I, you're growing up in Italy, do you talk I about the First World War? It's more complicated there. I don't know. I, don't, I certainly don't remember, you know, the national outpouring that you get here. I think I hadn't done a, a minute's silence for the First World War until I came to this country. Yeah. I think a lot of it is bound up in the literature, though, as well, in a sense, because that's such an important part of the way that we commemorate things. And as David mentioned before, we do have this piece of Italian poets of the First World War. And part of the reason why it's it's different is because in Britain, I wonder whether it's that because the poets, so many of them did die, they were sort of captured and frozen in the moment with their missives, their notes that they took and then translated into poetry or whether or not they made it back. Whereas in Italy, so many of the poets, like Gardegno Sofici and Giuseppe Ungaretti, we have these poems from, they went on, they lived on, and they lived on to you know sign the intellectual manifesto for fascism and they yeah. okayed the racial laws. And so everything was spoilt, really. You know, yeah. any, any, any kind of moment yes, of... the heroism is, the is heroism not preserved is in aspect. bleeds yeah. out, yeah. 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 Whereas this was the classic lost generation mm. in Britain, yeah. wasn't it? And in fact, we have a piece on... There are things other than the First World War in this week's TLS, but there is a, a piece on <laughs> Robert Graves that we have, which on G. Moorcroft Wilson's biography, which points out that everybody knows Robert Graves was a, a war poet, but not very many people can remember any lines of his war poetry. And, of course, he survived the war. Mm. We know him better for Goodbye to All That and various other much later things. And I suppose that applies there too. We're going to have to stop Alaska. There's an awful lot more we could be talking <laughs> about. But David Horsepool, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, how much do we collectively value privacy? Not very much, is the answer. Scandals emerge pretty frequently, like this year with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, but we presumably all still plough ahead with our online behaviour, leaving traces of ourselves and our personal information hither and yon. And how modern is privacy protection, or indeed invasion? This week, Sarah Igo has written a history of the phenomenon in America, which makes this central point, that scandals are a product of a society that has, time and time again, made a calculation that more thoroughgoing knowledge about its members would bring gains in security, efficiency, convenience and well-being. We moan about privacy, but we benefit from intruding into it ourselves. Or do we? Sarah is on the line to help us understand how we got here. Welcome to you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Where and when do these modern concerns about privacy begin, do you think? Sort of Civil War America is, is, is the turning point, do you think? I do, which is not to say, of course, that Americans or anyone else didn't think about privacy before then. But I do see a real turning point in the late 19th century when privacy privacy becomes a political concern, a public discussion and a public debate really for the first time. And then, you know, ever after uh, it never really goes away or never really dims as a topic for political debate and discussion. And is that a te- uh, is that a technology advancement you think that, that heralded that? Well, I think it's partly technology, but I wouldn't say it's only technology. I would say it's state centralization. It is new technologies that made the walls of one's home no longer a kind of protection against prying eyes and ears. You can think about the telegraph, the telephone, the mass media, photography, also the uh, sorts of channels of communication that would allow people to know things uh, about distant strangers, the uh, financial kinds of networks that were evolving in the United States around credit and insurance, all of those things kind of set the template, I suppose, for our modern debates around privacy. The media you mentioned, is that the sort of the rise of tabloids and, and magazines in America? I mean, because prurient stories had been, been around forever, really, yes, hadn't forever, they? yes, right. And, and worries about invasions of privacy, you know, through gossip, of course, have been around forever. But what changed in the late 19th century was the easy dissemination of that news. You know, we think about this, and it, it sounds eerily similar to our present, right? The, the fast spread of embarrassing, damaging information through the internet. The first stage of that, or at least one of the first stages of that, I think, was in the, um, the rise of uh, cheap newsprint, of uh, instantaneous photographies. People talked about about it in the late 19th century, where photographs could suddenly be printed in the newspaper through the invention of halftone technology, and candid photographs could be circulated by advertisers and journalists. You know, none of this is brand new, but it uh, the volume of it and the ease of circulation is new in the late 19th century. And that makes a big difference in how people thought about their privacy and about their boundaries. What could people know about them? What could they know about other people? And it introduced, or it helped introduce, this tension around that 
problem. We both want to know and we want to be known only as we wish to be known. And that that is a modern dilemma and it's baked in to many of our institutions, not just our media, into our institutions for social research, into our uh, governance structures, our social benefit systems, all kinds of institutions of modern life. You say public pressure has rarely been effective in halting invasions of privacy. What examples are you thinking of there where, where the public was successful in halting it? And do you, I suppose, that this is a completely different question, but do you think the, pro- the protests are becoming less effective, more, more futile? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's such a hard question to answer. You know, I think it is very difficult at this point in time for citizens, for individuals to feel that they can make effective protest against the really large organizations and agents in the society um, who have collected information about them. The state, uh, large corporations, the big social media companies, for example. On the other hand, I do think there are ways that the uh, those same technologies, the same ability that uh, citizens have now to watch the watchers, you know, may um, change that uh, to some degree. It seems to me that we all moan about privacy, but ultimately we want a targeted ad rather than a non-targeted ad. We want to one-click sign into Amazon rather than have to fill in our details again. We want convenience and and part of it there's an argument about state interference and whether that that trumps our, our privacy rights but there's one it's voluntary giving it up isn't it it's as saying we're willing for people to know information about us because we want an easy life Yes, I think that's right in some instances. And it's not only for ease or convenience, which may sound trivial. It's, you know, to get certain kinds of social benefits. You know, one of the cases that really interested me was how willing Americans were in the 1930s and 40s to let the government into their private lives, in a sense, through the social security system, because, of course, what was being offered, right? It was security and retirement. It was unemployment benefits. And they couldn't have seen that down the road, this number that they were assigned to give them that account, right, would uh, give uh, the government and anybody else, you know, access to lots more information about them than, you know, potentially, you know, lead them into disasters of identity theft and and so forth. So it's not just convenience. I mean, I think it's about a whole array of modern social goods that operate through us giving away some of our privacy, uh, some of our information. And we haven't really been able to total those up. They've happened, you know, each in their own way for their own good reason. But the accumulated effect, uh, no one could have anticipated, which is, you know, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook um, knowing so much about us. There's a part of it, which is, it's almost people wanting to be registered, people wanting to be, I think you say, wanting to be visible. And obviously, you see that echoed out across social media and where we're chronicling every our every mm-hmm. movement and our every consumption and whatever. That's a really, really hard thing to, to fight back against, our desire to be seen and, and count, accounted for. Yes, that's right. And again, though, what I have found so interesting there is the way that that impulse intersected with another, which was a kind of a technological and profit oriented and security oriented logic, right, which was to scoop up all that information that people were willing to give about themselves. So those are actually two different developments that have intertwined in our present and I think have made privacy crises so regular (laughs) and also so urgent, but, you know, perhaps also makes them feel very hard to, to solve. Right. That since at least the 1960s, this kind of outflow of personal information and personal stories and much less stigma attached to all kinds of really intimate details in the public sphere 
And then on the other hand, this kind of uh, discovery, which was actually pretty late, that you could use all that stuff to better target people in all kinds of ways. No, it's interesting as well that um, privacy was declared a constitutional right in the US by the US Supreme Court in 1965 as a response to all of this. Yes, in part. I mean, it was in, in response actually to a very particular and odd birth control case. But I think it really came out of this sense all of a sudden in the mid 1960s United States that privacy was under threat from all kinds of organizations, uh, public and private, uh, local and national, perhaps even international. And yes, so a constitutional right is announced by the Supreme Court, but it doesn't really and it can't really solve the kinds of um, negotiations, daily negotiations that people had to make um, to give something in order to get something, right, to give some of their information or give something of their private life away in order to secure something else that they wanted. And that's the tension. That's the dilemma um, that Um, we're in. And, and, you know, I do think by seeing that more clearly, we, we get a better picture of our current and you know seemingly daily crises around privacy and also it helps us see why they're so difficult to resolve we've agreed to some of this you know not always i think entirely voluntarily but we have agreed to some of this and we also get benefits uh, from it it's just that sometimes we see that too late maybe that those benefits maybe weren't worth <laughs> uh, the cost and it's not it's not a problem that's going away as as, as you make very clear uh, sarah Argo, thank you very much indeed Listeners to this podcast over recent weeks may have noticed that discussion of food has more than once crept into the show. Perhaps this is because as the nights draw in and the temperatures drop, it's difficult not to let one's mind drift to thoughts of steaming sustenance in one form or another. Or perhaps it's because we usually record around lunchtime, in a felt-clad, windowless box with not even so much as a glass of water to stimulate the senses. Thankfully, this week, off the back of a double review of two new cookbooks, Sight, Smell, Touch, Taste, Sound by Sybil Kapoor and Lateral Cooking by Nikki Segnet, both part of a fresh mood of experiment in the kitchen, we're granted the opportunity to invite B. Wilson to join us on the line to discuss food writing that celebrates the senses. So, hello, B. Hi. Hi. Um, so, before we hear all about Nikki Segnet and Sybil Kapoor's books, let's have a bit of context. What trends are we seeing at the moment in cookbooks? Well, I think there's a big really encouraging trend for something that I would call cooking with your eyes open, which is a whole series of kind of quietly experimental cookbooks, by which I mean, they're not like those kind of swathes of books that came before by people like Heston Blumenthal or Ferran Adria, which were really high concept and involved gadgetry that very few chefs or even home cooks possess. But they're sort of trying to unpack cooking and do it from first principles. So currently there's a huge Netflix hit documentary, which is an offshoot of Salmon Nosrat's book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And nothing she's doing there is not remotely complicated. She might be just showing you how to heat up olive oil to make ragu or what most British people would call spaghetti bolognese. But she's just talking about fat and what it actually does for the food and how it carries flavor and how it creates texture. And I think there's now a whole swathe of cookbooks that are kind of doing similarly interesting things. Another one that I loved was called The Art of Flavor by Daniel Patterson, who's a chef, and then Mandy Aftel, who's a perfume maker. And they were just trying to approach cooking a bit as if they were making a bottle of perfume and to ask, what kind of flavors would go together if you wanted to make the perfect carrot soup 
it seems that not only are these books reacting to that molecular gastronomy and the kind of outlandishness of, of that sometimes, there's also a reaction perhaps to the quite formulaicness of modern cookbooks, you know, the kind of the, the cookbooks that tend to target a reader by arranging recipes around a set number of ingredients or a set number of minutes from start to finish. That kind of cooking is more about following a list of instructions really precisely. I think they're also addressing the problem. I mean, none of us, realistically in this world needs another recipe or needs another cookbook but in a way what they're trying to do is cut through all of that and say well you might not need this particular recipe but here is how to break down the recipe to its first principles and once you've made this version of risotto then you'll have a tool which will mean you can do any other number of rice dishes so I like that about them I agree I think they are kind of trying to react against the ways in which the recipe has become something quite formulaic and just a kind of commodity. The Sunday papers just sell themselves saying 20 more recipes for this or 100 mm. more recipes for that. But who needs 100 more recipes for soup? But don't people need it because maybe people want the functionality of a recipe? My wife always rolls her eyes because when I follow a recipe, I, I sort of worry about skipping something or missing something. But maybe it's reassuring there's an authority out there and if, and if you follow something, you'll, you'll get a, a product that's edible at the end of it. There, there's this kind of functional relationship we should have with recipes still, isn't there? I think there is. And I went to an interesting talk recently as part of the Honey & Co podcast, Itamar Strulovich and Sarit Packer, who are the husband and wife team who run this wonderful restaurant, Honey & Co in Warren Street. And they were saying they completely disagree with this new idea that you just kind of use your own senses and add a pinch of this and a handful of that and they said the first time you make anyone's recipe you should follow it exactly but then you're kind of free to experiment but I also think it's a question of temperament I'm a really disobedient recipe follower and I don't know if it's just arrogance that I look I'm at the recipe same. and I I know I can substitute that and I know that it doesn't matter whether I have chives if I have some shallots and parsley which are somehow approximate to the same thing. But that's because you're an expert, Bea. You're both food. So I imagine if you were to link foodiness with following a recipe, there would be an inverse proportion connection to that. Well, because think? that was what interested me. That I mean, Itamar and Sarit are way more expert than I am, but they were saying they follow recipes to the letter the first time and then you experiment. So I, I think it's, I think it's temperament. I think it's, I mean, there's an endless debate that's gone on in cooking for centuries about is it a science or is it an art? It's clearly both. And even if you did follow a recipe to the letter, there's a question of what do you really mean by that? There's yeah. in one of my favorite cookbooks of all time, which is the Zuni Cafe cookbook by Judy Rogers. She talks about how the whole idea of exactitude is in some ways false because my butter is not the same as your butter my produce is not the same as her produce that she's bought from some market in California. So you're really always having to make these adjustments. And a good recipe kind of enables you to make those adjustments. And I think the two that I've discussed in my review both do that in different ways of giving you the power that next time you were following a recipe, you might feel confident that you were in fact following it, even if you didn't have exactly the 200 millilitres of sour cream that the recipe said you needed. Well, so, so let's talk about Nikki Segnet's book first then, because as you say, that's very much a kind of direct response to, to this. She expresses doubts as to whether for all the cookbooks she's a master of the years, she actually knows how to cook. And so that's sort of where her latest high concept book has come from. So perhaps you could give us a bit of background on her, you know, the flavour thesaurus and, and, and what she's doing in this new book that has, as you said, been very, very eagerly anticipated. 
I mean, Nikki Segnet's first book, The Flavor Source, was just one of the most successful and beloved, I would say, cookbooks or food books of recent years. And I can't think of anyone else quite whose second book has been more hotly anticipated. The Flavor Source, if you haven't already read it, it just had a brilliant, deceptively simple idea, which was just to ask what flavors actually go together and what happens when you do put them together. So anything from different things that you could pair with chocolate to why are garlic and thyme such an amazing combination in her view better than garlic and rosemary. Really why I like that book is the same reason why I like the new book, which is just, she's a great writer. She's so Mm. much fun to spend time with on the page. She just feels like great company. Is that common in in recipe books, do you think? Or do you think there's an awful lot of straining to be a good writer? And in some ways, that's the worst type of writing of all. It's true of novel writing. People who want to be good novel writers really going for it is, is almost the worst you could possibly be. Is that true for food writing, do you think? I think the problem with food writing is food is such... A just universally compelling subject. We all eat. We all love to eat at some level. It's visceral. There are a lot of people out there who are obsessed with food. But to be a great food writer, you have to be a writer as well as obsessed with food. And Nikki Segnant is a really rare person because she's she seems more obsessed with food than almost anyone I've ever read. I mean, she seems to have eaten everything in the whole world, judging from the flavor of the stories. <laughs> Thought of every combination that you might have ever eaten, including loads that you would never want to eat. But I'm glad that she's then explored those avenues to tell you, no, just don't bother with that. But she's a great, witty, aphoristic writer as well. And I think it's those two things together. There are people who write who aren't so good on the food. There are people who are great on the food, but just don't really know how to construct a sentence. And Nikki Segnet is both together. And lateral cooking, it's in a way not as high concept as the flavor thesaurus, but the idea is that lots of dishes that we think of as discrete dishes are actually part of a much bigger family. So you could start with something like marzipan stuffed dates and then you could suddenly see that it's got a connection with simnel cake or it's got a connection with some poultry dish stuffed with almonds that Claudia Roden makes. So it's these kind of leaps that you can make from one thing to another and it's got a wonderful conversational tone and and the basic concept is she says recipes aren't these self-contained things, they're these tools that lie on a continuum and the kind of mantra that I would see as being the kind of spirit of the whole book, as she says, be unafraid to deviate. So I love this. It's the idea that once you know the fundamental ratio of a shortbread or a white sauce, or it's quite old fashioned in a way. A lot of her basic building blocks are the ones that I would have recognized from home economics classes at school. She feels you should know how to make a bechamel. But once you know how to do that, you can do anything. And in a sense, what she's doing really, and in fact, Sir Booker Poor is as well to, to a degree that it's almost like they're teaching intuition. That That's what they're trying to, to give us. They're teaching us to be intuitive cooks. Yes, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Exactly, which is a kind of paradox, isn't it? It's sort of impossible. They're teaching us how to have enough structure in our brain that we can then be spontaneous and trust ourselves. The Booker Poor book I love as well. I mean, that one is again so original it's called sight smell touch taste sound and the idea is that whereas so often we just focus on what goes on in our mouth when we talk about eating and cooking there's actually this whole world of sensual pleasure which we're missing out on if we don't pay attention to the way that 
food sounds or the way that food smells. When we talk about taste, we're really talking about flavor, which is mostly going on in the nose. And she then, in these really interesting ways, categorizes her recipes according to texture or temperature. I really like this. She kind of made a plea for tepid food, which most people (laughs) think tepid food is somehow a failure, where she says, actually, most things taste best at room temperature. I kind of agree with her. Mm. It's funny because we were talking about this the other week, actually, Stig and I, as we were leaving the studio, how with a certain a certain person and plenty of people in, in my in my British family, actually, the highest compliment that you can pay to a, a dish is, is its temperature. They go, oh, it's piping hot. Just piping. Yes, piping hot. <laughs> my mother-in-law completely has that. She's called on blur trained and she just, to her, it would be a total sign of failure if you have served a meal without pre-warming the plates and I never pre-warm the plates I'm totally happy that the food has cooled down so that the temperature of the food and the temperature inside my mouth are roughly the same my family just consider cooking as the main aim of it is to make it safe to eat (laughs) so so, so you end up with chicken cooked sufficiently that there's definitely no risk of any problems with it and and that's that's almost the central criteria is it going to harm you by eating it And and the cooking is the is the means of stopping harm that is a kind of necessary but not sufficient, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. to be fair to them, some cooks don't achieve that and food poisoning is about the nastiest thing that mm. anyone could have. I see where they're coming from. Well, that's very understanding, B. Kapoor's book, though, to come back to that. So her central question is, what makes a dish delicious? And this is something, so she she breaks it down, as you say, isolating the five senses to help explore that. And you... You link this in your piece, we should say, to a charity that you're involved with, the Flavour School, which sounds it sounds a fantastic initiative. Yeah, I'm so proud and excited to be involved in this. Yeah, so it's called Flavour School. It's actually based on something that's been around in Scandinavia for more than 20 years called Sapphira. But we called it Flavour School because Sapphira is a Latin word and people don't really know how to pronounce it. And Anyway, <laughs> but basic idea is it's so simple. Instead of teaching children how to cook, there's a stage before that, which is, most of us haven't actually learned how to eat or at least not in ways that sustain our health. And so the idea is just you take really basic ingredients into a classroom. You could teach flavour school just with a couple of apples and you look at sight, you look at hearing. One of the favourite ones, I've done some flavour school sessions on a kind of pilot basis in my local school and when you do listening to food, we put on these noise cancelling headphones and we have loud and quiet bread. So the loud one is something like crackers or crisp bread and then quiet bread might be brioche or chola bread and then loud and quiet fruits and vegetables and then what you have is suddenly you'll have a five-year-old child taking something like a strawberry or a raspberry and kind of shaking it next to their (laughs) ear to see what sound it makes which sounds really silly but you realize that even as adults we don't pay attention to the difference that sound can make i couldn't tell you what a raspberry sounds like even now (laughs) Yeah, but it's the the basic idea is, I mean, we've been amazed by the response we've had so far. It's been piloted in Lincolnshire, in London, in Cambridge. And what we have found is that if you just take something like lemons into a classroom and say to children, we're going to talk about the ways in which these things are sour and other things are not sour. And we always say the two golden rules of flavour school is no one has to try anything and no one has to like anything. So it is a bit like Segnitz or Kapoor's books and it's just kind of playing and exploration. What we found is I took lemons into a classroom and out of those 30 kids, 11 of them had never tried lemons and said they hated them, but they then all tried it because somehow it's this peer pressure thing of you see other people trying it. And if you say you don't have to like something, then it just, you can 
smell something if you don't want to put it in your mouth. You can listen to it. You can hold the lemon to your ear and say, hang on, lemons are silent. That's really weird. Um, <laughs> and the aim is, it sounds strange, but the evidence we've had from the Scandinavian model is that over time, it builds up a child's palate. It makes them more willing to try new fruits and vegetables. And the hope is that it will be a kind of tool against child obesity. But we'd never go in the classroom and talk about fat or sugar or obesity. It's not about that at all. It's about fun. And I wonder if, in fact, what you're doing then is training uh, the next generation of Nikki Segnet who might describe eating oysters and lemon as like throwing off all your clothes and jumping off the end of a jetty. <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> yes, if it trains the next generation of Nikki Segnets, I'm all in favour of that. Yeah, I yeah. think it's really showing we all have a bit of Nikki Segnet inside of ourselves, but <laughs> our food culture suppresses it because you know, we buy food and it's inside these plastic packages and we can't smell it and we can't interact with it. And these two wonderful life-enhancing books are a way of kind of cutting through that and saying, look, your cooking isn't drudgery. It's the most fun that you can have in this life. You can have Silence of the Lemons. That's a title. You can have that title, B. I want to hear a book, read a book at some point, The Silence of the Lemons. Thank you. I like that. <laughs> Thanks, B. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Me. Go on then, Thea. What's your What's your favourite cookbook? I don't have one. No, you know? I knew you were going to say you that. You're what? such no, I a don't. foodie. Well, no. no I, <laughs> although I do love the flavoured saurus. My husband actually uses it a lot. He's a brewer, and he, he yeah, it's so it's a of course he is. the kind of you'll you'll recognise the cover instantly. Most people will, I think. They'll have seen it in bookshops. It's got a kind of almost like a, it's a colour wheel, and those sort of the, the flavours pe- fit around that colour wheel, so you can see how different flavours will pair. And if, for example, someone comes to your house and you know you're cooking a dish and you discover that they happen to hate black olives yeah. or something. You can find a substitute flavour that fulfils the same criteria but doesn't upset the person who hates black olives. It's but, a it's an incredible really, resource. Do they really hate black olives? Well, who knows? See, that's who knows? the thing. Just an affectation. I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Horsepool, B. Wilson and Sarah Igo. Do get a copy of the paper. Uh, the writing on the war is really very, quite something and there's lots of other interesting stuff too. Remember, tweet us now where you are when you're listening to this podcast. Next week, it's politics and economics in the aftermath of the American midterms. Thea's going to be wearing her Make America Great hat again, but not here. <laughs> where will I be? I don't know. You're not here next week. I'm not. I'm not here. Here? I'm not here. You're not here. in the pod. Doing the I'm podcast. not in the pod. No, I won't be on the podcast. Will you be wearing a make America Great hat? Almost certainly not. Fine, but you're. I would li- bet my life on my not wearing <laughs> Make America Great hat. But Lucy will stand in for you. <laughs> yes. Should we get her the hat? I mean, no. Okay. No. <laughs> Until then, from there and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.